Some of you haven't been asked that question in many decades. Some of you have probably been asked it this week because you're six years old. But we've all been asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? But then as you grow older, that question kind of evolves or shifts and it turns into, well, where do you see yourself in five years? I've even been asked that in job interviews before. And then you go on throughout your career and then the question becomes, well, what do you want your retirement to look like? Well, all those questions have something to do with work. The average American, in fact, spends, I saw the statistic, 90,000 hours of their life at work, doing their profession, whatever it may be. But those questions hint at something more than just where we'll be working. They hint beyond even what we'll be doing. They hint at why, our purpose. They hint at who we are, what composes us, and how we fit into the grand scheme of life. But far more than you know, wanting to be a, a firefighter or an astronaut, Of course, every believer should be asking those same exact questions. Ultimately, of course, those questions should be driven by the desire to be used by God for what He sets forth for us to do. Whether that involves our profession or our vocation or not, everywhere in life to use the giftedness that He's given us to do the work that He's called us to. Now, if I were to ask everyone here who has a personal testimony of faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, you know, I think that all of you would say that at least it should be our desire to be useful to Christ, our Master. Well, we've been tracing the theme of work through this chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we see a call in verse 1 to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To share in the suffering later on as a good soldier, to be disciplined like an athlete, and then to work hard as a hard-working farmer. But in verse 15, we also see that our call is to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed. And here, we come to this point and we see what is necessary to be useful to the Master, ready for every good work. So we'll start in verse 20. You can turn there if you haven't already. We read, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So we see a metaphor here of this great house. It's like a mansion. You know, and imagine in a great house, in a mansion, there are all kinds of what we would call vessels. There's furniture, there's eating utensils, there's bowls, there are things that decorate and adorn the house. And of course, some of them in a, in a great house, in a mansion, if you've ever been in a mansion before, some of them are very elaborate. They're ornate. They're of exceptional value because they're made out of rare materials like precious metals and they're adorned with gems and they've taken a lot of craftsmanship to make. Now those things are used to decorate or to adorn the house. They're reserved for the most fine occasions, the most noble of uses. 
perhaps in the ones that actually have a utilitarian value to them, like a bowl or a serving utensil. They're only used when guests of honor are over. These are the precious vessels, the ones of gold and silver for honorable use. Yet, in any house, there are other vessels made of much more common, cheaper material, like wood or simple pottery, things that are far less durable or rare to find, you know. And these are used for the most menial of uses. In that time that Paul's writing this in the first century AD, they would have been used to collect garbage, to wash out other things. Some of them were even used to collect human waste. Of course, (laughs) they'd never be used to serve a guest of honor or any guest. They'd never be put on display in such a great house. Now, what does this all mean? You know anything about metaphors in the Bible? Every single metaphor breaks down at some point if you stretch it beyond the teaching purposes of that metaphor. If you abuse it and try to make it apply to things it doesn't apply for. But thankfully, Paul in verse 21 gives us what this metaphor is for. What he's saying is that this great house is Christ's church. And that doesn't mean this local church or any church building. No, it actually means the the church of all true believers. Now, the master of this church, of course, is Christ Himself. But what are the vessels? Well, the vessels represent individual believers. Represents them in accordance with their level of faithfulness and therefore their level of usefulness to the master. We have honorable vessels who are faithful and useful in service to the Lord, and these would be those good soldiers, those disciplined athletes, those hard-working farmers. Yet in contrast, we have the far much less honorable, the far more commonplace vessels. We have those who are limping by, those who are encumbered by sin, by fear, by laziness, by bitterness perhaps by the cares of this world or worldly patterns of thought. Now let's be clear. The usefulness of these vessels and the honorableness of these vessels has nothing to do with the level of giftedness God has given them. This is not saying that God gifts some to be honorable and useful vessels and he gifts others, he skimps back a little on the gifting and gifts others to be, you know, dishonorable or less useful. It has nothing to do with that. It also has nothing to do with the type of work for the kingdom that God has called each individual believer to. This is not saying, well, there is some honorable work that God has purposed in your life and gifted you and enabled you to do. And then there's, you know, dishonorable work, you're going to be the grunt. No, we can see examples of honorable vessels in every level of service to the kingdom. From the flashy, out-in-front type levels of service, prominent levels of leadership, all the way to the quiet, unassuming, behind-the-scenes service to the Lord. But we can also find dishonorable vessels in every type of service to the Lord. This has everything to do with the heart of the vessel. Every believer, no matter our station in life, is intended to be an honorable vessel. 
given this analogy, I think that everyone here would say, would raise their hands and say, yeah, I don't want to be the thing used to carry out waste or anything like that. I want to be an honorable vessel. I want to be useful to the master. So then the question becomes, how does one become an honorable vessel? How does one prevent themselves from being polluted by what is dishonorable? Well, verse 21 says that we must cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. Now, the word for cleanse here means to completely purge. It means to remove oneself from. Now, when we think of, if I were to ask all of you, who cleansed you when you came to faith? Was it you? Did you cleanse yourself? Did you clean up your act and get all squeaky clean and then say, all right, God can accept me now? Thank you that no one raised their hands and said yes, because that is wrong. Christ found you when you were lost. You were brought to the end of yourself. And in fact, the way you came to saving faith in Christ is when the Holy Spirit broke through the doubt in your life, the lost condition that you were in, and made you realize that you couldn't cleanse yourself. Made you realize that you needed a Savior. But here we see that we are to cleanse ourselves from or purge ourselves or remove ourselves from something. What are we to cleanse or purge ourselves from? Well, certainly and obviously this entails any patterns of sin you have in your life. Look, if you are under the impression, and unfortunately some believers are, if you are under the impression that you can maintain a corner of your life over here for your favorite sin, or that thing that you're not willing to surrender to Christ, yet then in all the rest of your life you can be an honorable vessel in service of your Savior, you're sorely mistaken. You are mistaken. We've seen so-called servants of God fail miserably due to sin areas in their lives. I don't need to give you all the examples, but recently Ravi Zacharias comes to mind. To have their sin come public in such a disgraceful way that everyone can see, believers, non-believers, everyone can see that that person is a dishonorable vessel, if even a vessel at all. But this applies even to those sins that you might call, oh, it's less of a big deal than something like that. These small areas of your life. You cannot maintain a pattern of sin in your life and be an honorable vessel set apart and useful to the Master. So yes, we must constantly allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of unconfessed sin areas of our life. Behaviors, attitudes, actions, mindsets, all of it. But beyond that, consider the wider context here. What we've been walking through in this book of 2 Timothy, and even including a lot of the themes of 1 Timothy that we finished. We've just finished a segment about how deceitful talk corrodes the church. We finished a segment talking about how irreverent babble and quarrels will come in and lead people into more and more ungodliness and that'll spread like gangrene and it tears apart the church. How false teaching and divisiveness can deceive the pregnable hearts of even some believers. In fact, we're going to see warnings against that pick up right again once we move past these two verses. Now, those are the behaviors of dishonorable vessels. In fact, verse 21 more accurately reads, simply put, if you want to be useful, if anyone cleanses himself from this, 
That's how the Greek reads. If anyone cleanses himself from this, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Well, what is this? What is this that verse 21 refers to? It's referring to the dishonorable vessels mentioned in verse 20. I hope I'm not going too confusing and in too many circles for all of you, but I hope you're tracking with me. Carefully understand what this is saying. Paul is telling Timothy to remove himself or purge himself from the polluting, corrupting influence of the dishonorable vessels who are being useless to the Master. This is saying that godly believers are to separate themselves from the influence of others whose hearts and motives are categorically impure. Basically, it's saying remove yourself from those who will only confuse, deceive, and discourage you. Now, that seems really harsh, doesn't it? That seems kind of an abrasive, uh, that's, that's a big step right there. You know, does this really mean that we must demand absolute perfection of somebody and if they don't measure up to that standard, we just write them off? Well, of course not. We are a church of saved sinners who are being sanctified. But what this is saying is that that which could be useful and pure can quickly become contaminated and therefore unusable when in constant contact with the corrupt. I mean, do you ever uh, accidentally put a dirty dish back with the clean dishes and then you realize that it was dirty and then you feel like you've got to wash all the dishes there because the dirty one touched the clean ones and now they're all dirty. I, I mean, to be honest, I'm not quite that neurotic myself, but perhaps some of you feel that way. <laughs> you know, every single Christian, and I've noticed this, I haven't found one yet. Every single Christian, to a man or to a woman, would claim that they are not influenced that much by others who may be corrupting influences. Everyone said, oh, I'm immune to that. I know where I stand. You know, I could see how that person who's talking false teachings and is deceptive and is uh, divisive and all of those things, I, I could see how they could influence other weaker Christians, but I'm a mature Christian. 100% of Christians claim that they are immune to that, yet it happens to so many. Just look at the previous verses from last week. We see that irreverent babble will lead what? Lead nothing? No, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And then it stops right there. No, their talk spreads like gangrene. We see the example of Hymenaeus and Philetus who upset and even overthrew the faith of some. Some who I guarantee probably thought that they were immune to having their faith overthrown. Now, furthermore, consider who Paul is writing this metaphor to. Paul is commanding someone, a direct recipient of this epistle, to cleanse himself from bad influences, from the dishonorable, from the corrupting influences in his life. Now, is Paul writing to some immature baby Christian? No. He's writing to Timothy, one of the most important figures in the early church. Timothy may have been much younger than Paul, but Timothy was solid. Timothy knew his Bible. And Timothy was a man of character. Yet still, 
Paul is saying, if you want to be used by the Lord to the fullest potential that He's given you, remove yourself from that which can only hinder and corrupt you. And even if that doesn't have so much of a corrupting influence on you, what does it do for your ministry when people see that you are associating with false teachers? When people see that you're associating with that which is corrupt? If you want to be used by the Lord to the fullest potential that He's given you, remove yourself from that which can only hinder you and corrupt you. We as human beings, like it or not, for some of you who are more uh, introverted, let's say, like it or not, we were meant to live in community. We were designed to live in community. We as Christians are designed to live out our faith in community. Iron sharpens iron. You know, encourage one another, build each other up. The environment of the community that we place around ourselves will inevitably influence who we are and how we grow spiritually. You know, I know we're all we're all past this and everything, but I got to bring it up. I am sure that Satan loved few things more than when all the churches shut down during the pandemic. I'm sure that that gave him a lot of delight. Why? Well, believers were isolated from one another. No iron to sharpen iron. No one to encourage one another or build one another up. No one to be accountable to. We were all on little islands. Everyone was left to their own devices to fend for themselves when the only influences that pervaded our daily lives were polluted ones. Like the news. Like whatever comes through the TV that we use to saturate our time. But if we purge ourselves from the sin and sinful influences in our lives, verse 21 says that we will be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So I'll ask all of you again, do you desire to be an honorable vessel, set apart as holy, useful to Christ your King, and ready for every good work that He has in store for you? Yes, the answer, of course, should be yes. Then let us strongly consider who we surround ourselves with. Let's all take inventory of what we have in our life and who we have in our life that's influencing us. Who, who do I allow to influence the way that I think and talk and act? What do I allow to influence my, my thinking, my worldview? my attitude. So how do we cleanse ourselves to become useful? Well, when we recognize the polluting influences on our lives and the polluting patterns of behavior, we see the right response right here in verse 22, which reads, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But if you desire to be an honorable vessel, set apart, useful to Christ, ready for every good work, then flee those immature patterns of behavior. Flee. Don't flirt around with it. Leave, turn tail, and run from all of those things unbefitting of a useful vessel. 
And these youthful passions don't just include those things that we think of when we think of crazy things that younger, less mature people would do. Now, this is talking about everything from argumentativeness, impatience, laziness, impulsiveness, partiality, lack of self-control, flee, run away from it, leave it behind, and grow up. But this passage isn't only about what to purge. You know, we, if we just talked about what we were to leave behind, we would so, fall so woefully short of what a mature life in Christ looks like. Instead of just being about what to flee, what are we supposed to pursue? It says pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Don't just run away from the bad things, but run in the right direction toward Christ, which is righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, since we've removed ourselves from corrupting influences and dishonorable vessels, does that mean we just go it alone? No. It says pursue those useful things with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Surround yourselves with believers who will keep you accountable. People who are focused on Christ. People who point you toward Christ people who edify you into becoming a more useful vessel. Now let's be clear here. Don't just surround yourself with people who are appear to be pious, who appear to have less sin in their life than others. No, surround yourself with people who truly, honestly challenge you to become more and more like Christ because they themselves genuinely love Christ and they themselves genuinely love you. People who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So remove yourself from those who will only deceive and confuse and discourage you and run the race alongside those who are running in the same direction as you. But then we see in verse 23, it says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So yet again, this seems like the third time already in just this chapter, we see a warning against disputes over nonsense. We see a warning against quarrels and fighting that lead to nothing but division. You know, on one hand, as, as we covered last week, there's this principle here that keeps reoccurring, which is this reminder to be discerning about what hills you choose to die on. Make sure that what you're being bold about is the solid rock, is the truth of God. Avoid causing factions and division in the church and outside the church over trivial things that do not matter in light of eternity. But in the context of this chapter, we look a little closer at this, and we see that so much of what corrupts a vessel and makes that vessel useless starts with what they believe. You know, most bad behavior, in fact, all all. Uh, bad fruit that we see in our lives can fundamentally be traced back to bad theology. It comes back to what we believe. No, I don't mean that you hold on to some heresy that was dismissed in the 300s AD. It means that fundamentally, deep down, even if you think that you have all your beliefs set straight, if you choose sin over Christ, there is a fundamental problem with your theology, at least how you live out your theology. And so much of what pollutes an otherwise useful vessel, so much of what pollutes and corrupts people comes down fundamentally to what they believe. 
we act out what we believe to be true. When we choose sin over Christ, you may say, no, I know that Jesus Christ is my Master and Lord and He's more precious to me than everything. But what you're signaling right there is that that sin is more precious to you than Jesus Christ. Is it not? We act upon what we believe to be true. False beliefs, no matter how underneath the surface they are, no matter how cognizant or not we are of them, false beliefs cannot produce righteousness. They lead people into more and more ungodliness. So false beliefs, deceitful talk, division, they all pollute and corrupt people and render them useless as vessels to Christ. So how do we avoid this? Well, so much of avoiding falsehoods and impure beliefs is studying and knowing what is pure. You know, so many believers neglect personal study of the Scripture. So many do. It's honestly quite astonishing. If you look at surveys, and people are honest, we have been gifted more than any other generation with the ability to study the Word of God at all times. Not only are our literacy rates about near 100, so you can read, for starters. You have the Word of God translated into your native tongue. Even if you don't speak English, the Bible has been translated into thousands of languages. We have copies of the Bible everywhere in all sorts of translations. We even can access the Bible right here in the palm of our hands at all times. And we have tools and resources that help us study the Bible. But probably more than any time in human history, believers have become less and less biblically literate. You know, They just take for granted what they hear around them. Whether it's from their pastor or from YouTube or the radio or from other so-called believers or even from non-believers. They take that at face value without ever checking what they read or hear against God's pure and uncorrupted Word. Now you may say, well, that's just for the professionals to do. That's for people who stand behind the pulpit to do, you know, to study the Word, and I'll just leave it up to them to study and teach, and I'll show up and listen. Well, I'm very thankful and grateful that you have shown up to listen and be fed with the Word of God, but I'll put it to you this way. You all know the reputation of the dishonest mechanic, right, who swindles and upcharges people for unnecessary, costly repairs to their vehicle, right? Everyone's heard of that. Everyone kind of tries to look out for that. Well, let me ask you this question. Who are they swindling? Who are they upcharging? Are they swindling the person who knows a whole lot about vehicles? who is able to take every claim that the mechanic makes and check it against the owner's manual and check it against a working knowledge of mechanics and how a car works? No. They're swindling the person who knows nothing about cars and says, well, they're the professional if they say so. They say my blinker fluid was running low, so, you know, I had to get more blinker fluid. What can I say? In the same way, we can stay uncorrupted from what is foolish and ignorant by knowing what is true, by becoming familiar with the source of truth itself, and that is the Word of God. That's what I'm hoping we're equipping you here with. So throughout this chapter, as I've said before, we've traced this theme of work. How we're to be that soldier, that athlete, that farmer, a workman approved unto God who has no need to be ashamed. And here we say a vessel useful for the master, ready for every good work. Yet we also see throughout this chapter problems 
that will face us when we endeavor to do that work. We've seen dangers to avoid and even certain company to avoid. Yet we know full well it's promised to us that if we give ourselves unto being a useful vessel, we're going to face opposition. How do we react in the face of opposition? We'll read the last three verses of this chapter, which say, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, in this segment, I will say, Paul is writing to Timothy. And who is Timothy? Of course, he's a pastor in Ephesus. He's an overseer of house churches in Ephesus. And Paul is particularly honing in on characteristics of a useful pastor or elder here. You know, Paul has used the term the Lord's servant often to refer to pastors and elders multiple times throughout First and Second Timothy. Moreover, in verse 24, when it says able to teach, you know, that's not something that can apply to everyone because not everyone has the gift of teaching. We know that this is a requirement, however, of pastors and elders. But while these verses particularly are honing in on commands for Timothy as a pastor and for all pastors and elders, they offer a challenge for all of us. Now, I've personally read this passage many times. I've internalized it. I truthfully have received a lot of conviction from these three verses. That's because it's a simple fact that if a pastor is doing his job faithfully and effectively, he will have opponents. That's just the truth. God's plan for the church is to be the institution of truth proclamation in the current age. That's what God has set the church apart for. And in the church, God gave some to be pastors and elders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the institution that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I right? So the church, the church's leaders, those within the church, will face attacks and opposition, both from the outside and sometimes, yes, even within. But a pastor or anyone in the church who boldly stands on the word of God must not be unmoored by opposition. They can't be frazzled by it. They can't let it affect them and how they minister. And when a servant of God is faced with quarreling or division or opposition, he must not be provoked to respond in kind, even though that's what the flesh wants, right? Instead, in the model of the Master Jesus Christ, we must be kind to everyone, as it says here. Those who are pastors and elders must be able to teach Why? Because we must be able to confront falsehoods with truth. If someone is engaging in foolish, ignorant controversies and quarrels, they need to be presented with what is authentic and sound. But then we get to the hardest part of that verse. It says, patiently enduring evil. Now let me be clear. This does not mean that evil is to be tolerated or allowed. In fact, we already have instructions of what to do with a factious person. 
we already know that we are to give no quarter to false teachers, no tolerance. But we do correct falsehoods. We know that. But, as it says here, with gentleness. A gentle answer turns away wrath. What this means here is that we don't take matters into our own hands. We don't seek our own revenge. Even if we feel like we're the ones who are being opposed, what they're really opposing is Christ, His church, the truth of God. But the reason why we don't take things into our own hands the reason why we patiently endure evil and we respond with gentleness is because there's something much more at stake than us being right, than our own reputation, than getting what we think to be right, and that is the person's soul. That's the soul of the person who's opposing you. Because we see here, by handling opposition in a Christ-like manner, we, we demonstrate that true, authentic faith to that person opposing us so that, as we read here, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When you respond with gentleness, when you respond truthfully yet in love, you might just wake that person up. Because look, there's, there's no two ways to put it. If someone is being factious and divisive and deceitful in the church, then yes, they have been captured in the snare of Satan. The Word of God says it right there. No ifs, ands, or buts. Satan loves nothing more than to tear apart the church from the inside, and Satan loves nothing more than to use those dishonorable vessels to pollute other vessels and render them useless. But a firm, truthful, loving, Christ-like response can wake them up and point them back to Christ so that they too can be restored and be a useful vessel ready for every good work. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about being a useful vessel, able to be used by Christ. Of course, as we've covered here, much of that is setting ourselves apart from those influences that draw us away from Christ. Instead, pursuing Christ with others who are as well. Look, this is why... The church family is so important to every believer. This is why discipleship is so important for every believer. Ephesians 4.16 says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we all grow into being useful vessels in the hands of Christ, ready for whatever good work He calls us to. Today, tomorrow, this week, this year, for the rest of your lives, until He returns or He calls you home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for 